Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Blizzard's Greatest Game podcast recorded at the Outset Studios in sunny South Wimbledon. Joining myself, Marcus Speller and Jonathan Wilson, today is Jack Pitbrook, football journalist at The Independent. Jack, lovely to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Um, Today's match that we're going to talk about is the FA Cup semi-final in 2011 between Manchester United and Manchester City. City fans will appreciate this one, I'm sure. Why have you gone for this one, Jack? Um, I think this was one of the most significant moments uh, in the modern development of Manchester City. It's very easy to look at the last 11 years and all the money spent and to think that all the success that City enjoy now was kind of automatic or inevitable from the spending. And in a sense it was, but it didn't feel that way at the time. Like it didn't feel that way, certainly in the Hughes and Mancini eras, when City were for the first time trying to get trying to get their head around what this incredible power they had and how best to use it. And this game was huge because it was their first Wembley game of the Abu Dhabi era. Probably the, the first kind of big landmark win over Manchester United. Um it set them up to win the FA Cup, which, of course, was the first trophy since 1976, which led to taking the banner down, which was a huge psychological thing for City fans at the time. Uh, so it was a lot of... Do you fr- want to just explain to people what the banner Yeah, so, I mean, if you can remember all the way back to before City started winning things, there was a banner at Old Trafford which would tick up every year to, to laugh at the last time City won a trophy. <laughs> and obviously City won the League Cup in 1976, but by 2011, it was through to 36 years mm-hmm. since then. And for City fans, this war, I mean, it, com- it completely had the desired effect in the sense that it was humiliating for City fans to see this. And City fans would get so angry about it. And after City won the FA Cup, which they did by beating Stoke City 1-0 a few weeks after this game, uh, the banner came down at Old Trafford. And this was a massive deal for mm-hmm. City fans. That, that particular banner so in a sense it was all these firsts but it was also like the the last time that City would go into a game against Manchester United as an underdog it was probably the last time that City would win a big game like this and feel a sense of like shock and achievement mm-hmm. at having won such a at such a game because now like one of the reasons that I picked this game is because going to like, particularly the FA Cup final which we all know was terrible really as a contest the FA Cup semi-final against Brighton which was very boring although City did only win at 1-0 like it just felt a million miles away from this game because mm-hmm. you know I went in this game as in a personal capacity and it was so like the fact that City could win felt almost unbelievable like City fans almost couldn't couldn't get their heads around how this happened but I mean I think it's, it's a really um, striking example of how things have changed like, I remember, you know, on, the, on the tube going to the 6-0 win over Watford this season um, there was Creeper City fans in my carriage, yeah, singing, you know, singing with a famous city, Man, Man City and we're going to Wembley. <coughs> and somebody goes, Yeah, for the fifth time this season. And this was their first time at Wembley, <laughs> the first time at New Wembley, the first time at Wembley since the, mm. the, the playoff final back in uh, in 99. So that's an extraordinary difference that now they're a team who are bored of going to Wembley, but back then it was still a, a big thing. Yeah, yeah completely. It's. Um it, it is it is so different in only in only eight years since then, uh, and no no one even though people knew that Shea, by this time like Sheikh Mansour was clearly like had more money and more ambition than anybody first expected when he bought the club in two thousand and eight. Nobody then I think would really have been able to expect City to have become as good and dominant as they now are. Like, ne- never to get you know one hundred points ninety eight points. Yeah, and and so when so Manchester City obviously you know. We cast our minds back to to that era. The money's coming in. Much better players are going to the club. There is a growing sense of hang on. If we're finishing higher in the league, we can now challenge. When that draw is made, 
when they are up against Manchester United, what is the feeling? Is the feeling of, oh, blimey, it's them, or is it kind of, no, hang on a minute, this can be a scam, this, this is now achievable, we're going in almost as equals? I think the feeling was, well, this is obviously totally awful, but it means we won't have to play United in the final, <laughs> which would have been the most awful thing imaginable. Right. Okay, so yeah. there was still... so Yeah, oh, yeah and, and that's the significance of this win, of course. Yeah. Is well, the, I think even the way the league games had gone that season, uh-huh. that's still sort of... Yeah, I imagine if you're a City fan, you'd be saying, oh, God, it's happening again. Yeah, the, the one, there was the nil-nil draw, and then there was the Rooney overhead kick game. Mm-hmm. So you've got yourselves in a position where you can challenge them, and then... Their sort of their key player produces a moment of brilliance. So, yeah, what can you do? Which is something that, that perhaps Manchester City maybe or their fans felt that they didn't have and pati- in their locker. Yeah, and particularly because the the previous season, City United played out a very exciting uh, Carling Cup semi final, which United won. Right, I think Rooney scored the winner right at the very end. Um, actually, what was that? Even, sorry, I, I got this wrong. That might even have been earlier. No, that was the previous season. It was two thousand nine. It was around that time. Yeah, so. and. Um, for City fans like, like, obviously that was agonising and everyone remembered the famous 4-3 in the Premier League at Old Trafford mm-hmm. uh, back in 2009 where uh, Michael Owen scored in like the 93rd minute mm-hmm. and so there was this sense among at, at City that they could never beat United mm-hmm. like United would always beat them with a the last minute goal there was remember the one where Paul Scholes scored that header with basically the last action of the game in an otherwise very boring at Manchester City yeah at the Etihad mm-hmm. um so it did feel to City fans as if they would never be able to beat Manchester United, certainly not in a big game. Mm-hmm. And United would keep landing these kind of unrecoverable from late blows. And so this is why, and this led to, this kind of reinforced the kind of inferiority complex going into this game. And that's why it was so surprising it turned out as it did. Well, actually, the, the game itself, the way it began, it looked like it was going to follow that script, that United were totally on top for the first sort of 10, 15 minutes. Berbatov had two great chances uh, there's, so there's a, a chance where um, Park plays and slips him through City's defence is a little bit slow to get out and he's clean through against Joe Hart and Joe Hart makes a really good save and then they've also recycled very quickly I think maybe the ball didn't even go out of play it's recycled very quickly the ball's whipped uh, I think it's Nanny puts the, puts the ball across and Bertoff slides in and he's what three yards out and you think he's got a score mm-hmm. and somehow it goes over the bar and so yeah United's Okay, I mean, it wouldn't have been two up because they, they, in a sense, they were both phases of the same chance. But they probably should have been one up very early. And you suspect that had that happened, given the psychology of it, City might have collapsed, as they so often had done in the past. And Berbatov's leading the line. Rooney's not there. But they've still got this... Yeah, really sitting on the bench wearing a tie and a tracksuit top, looking awful. Yeah, well, I think Rooney was out injured for the game or suspended. He was, he was. Uh... Yeah, but it's that combination of tracksuit top and tie. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, not the worst thing he's. Uh... <laughs> anyway, um, but but yes, you're right. The way the game starts, Manchester City, uh, Manchester United are on top, and then City had lost three 0 at Liverpool the previous Monday, hadn't they? So mm. there was a there was a sort of a, in good a, a sense that. Yeah, they, they they weren't in the greatest shape. Yeah, there were a lot of questions around that time about Mancini's future, because this was Mancini's first full season at the club. Uh, he didn't win over a lot of people, especially in the media. Um, and it was felt that he had to, to, to kind of justify the fact that he took over from Mark Hughes, he would have to win something or get City into the top four. Like, remember, the previous season was when Spurs famously won at City right at the end of the season with the Peter Crouch header to get into the Champions League. So there's a real sense that, like, City had not achieved anything yet, but that they would have to achieve something to justify the money they spent and justify bringing in Mancini. 
and this and that's why this is so important mm-hmm. and as as the game pans out, I mean, you look at the Manchester United side. We should say, by the way, that because people are thinking, okay, well, how good was that Manchester United? So, I mean, this this was a team went on to win the league and the Champions League final, and some people thought that it was Man City. Obviously, Barcelona would have made sure, but the, the, the treble was on. Well, yeah, because they knew in the final they were going to play Stoke or Bolton. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't remember which way around the two semis were, but I mean, uh-huh. as it turned out, Stoke hammered Bolton five nil. Yeah, I, th- I think the, this one was first. Um, but so you, you you are looking at this game thinking whoever wins this is a strong favourite for the final. Yeah, and Manchester Manchester United are legitimately thinking. So th- this is essentially you know, a slight development on the United side that's won the Champions League in two thousand eight, uh-huh. got to the final in two thousand and nine, yeah. and you still had Ferdinand and Bilic at centre back, yeah. still had uh, Everett fullback. Okay, John O'Shea was filling in at, at, at sure. on, on the uh, on the right. Uh, Parkey still in Carrick in middle midfield. Berbatov up front with uh, skulls behind them and Nani and um, Valencia wide. Mm. Still a really strong United side. So and it, and, it, it and feels like that, that classic sort of completely. what would it be Ferguson's fourth great side. Yeah, I think it's probably United's last great side. I think it probably a more complete side than the one that won the Premier League two years after. Which yeah, I think uh, that's, uh, uh, that's absolutely true. I think that 2013 title. It feels like the least of United's 20 titles, if that doesn't sound yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sort of felt slightly freakish and so predicated on Van Persie being brilliant that season. But one of and the also more other teams not, not really being at it that season. Perhaps as a result, maybe one of Ferguson's more impressive ones who managed to squeeze a title in out In a of sense, team. yeah. I mean, it helped, obviously, that City were in their phase of not being able to play well two seasons running. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but to, to give a little bit more context, I mean, the Man City side, you know, Lescott was at the back. Um, you know Adam Johnson in there, and Sean Wright Phillips came on for him. This is how far back we're going in in terms of uh, Manchester City under Middle Eastern ownership, and, and Patrick Vieira came on for the last few minutes for for David Silva. So uh, you know there's no Sergio Aguero. Yes, Balotelli's there, but th- th- this um, Manchester City side was still you hadn't won a trophy, as you say, Jack, uh, and so on. Um, but they came back into the match. Well, it's David Silva who leads the comeback, isn't it? Which um... I know David Silva, if you're looking for things to criticise about City this season, David Silva maybe has been not as good as he has been in the past. He's looking like a player who's probably coming towards the end of his time as a certainly as a starter. But this was, you know, Silva inspired that, uh, the, you know, I mean, it's not a comeback because obviously he went behind, but given how well United played in that first 10-15 minutes, it's Silva who then leads mm-hmm. the, City, the City charge. Yeah, and the man who was, you know, in, in recent years one of the most valuable players at Manchester City, Yaya Torre, capitalises on an uncharacteristic Michael Carrick mistake. Oh, and it's given away by Carrick. And this is Torre! And does that drive through that, that that we saw him do certainly in the first few years of his Man City career and slots home the only goal? Yeah, this I mean again, Torre is another example where there were an awful lot of questions about him at mm. the time. I remember when when City got him, people didn't really know what his position was meant to be. Is he a holding midfielder? Is he is he going to be more attacking? And um, this was the first time that we really saw that that incredible power that he could have and be and also that ability he would have in a very big game just to kind of to to grab it by the scruff of the neck to use the cliche uh and just turn it into what he wanted it to be mm-hmm. uh the way that he nicked the ball off Carrick burst past Vidic and then kind of uh clips the ball off the it kind of rolls quite slowly through Van der Sar's yeah, so legs he with his heel doesn't yeah it, it looks like deliberate, a, but it was it, effective it was, it was effective but it's I mean from United's point of view it's an absolute shambles of a goal terrible 
it's a ball over the top that Ferdinand seems really slow to react to, mm-hmm. as if he sort of he doesn't think he could, could, could conceivably be under, pre- under any pressure. He then plays a really ropey back pass to Van der Sar. He then, as a result, misses his clearance. They look to have sorted it out. It slipped inside to, to Carrick, who then gives it away. So it's about three mistakes go together, but then mm. yeah, Vieira is able to, to capitalise. Yeah, and is that the, <laughs> that moment when the goal goes in, the psyche starts to change, man. They're a goal up. And in Yaya Torre, when he produces a moment like that, I think because of, as you said, Jack, that he displayed that power, that drive. Suddenly, so we've mentioned in some of the previous Manchester derbies when Rooney produces a moment, and perhaps Man City fans are thinking, can one of our players do that? You know, Do we have those kind of elite players that can produce something and, and as you mentioned, grab the game by the scruff of the neck. In that moment when Yaya Torre scores that goal, goes on to get the winner, if my memory serves me correctly, in the final, Man City fans are thinking, hang on, we've got a player that we can begin to hang our hats on. We've got Yaya Torre and we don't have to be afraid of this Manchester United side now. Yeah, well, the one guy City had then who could do that kind of thing was Carlos Tevez. Mm -hmm. Tevez was brilliant for his first two seasons at City. Uh, but he was injured for this game. He was missing, and that's why they had to start Mario Balotelli up front instead, um, who himself actually played really well in quite a surprising way. Like he didn't. This was back when he was doing stupid things all the time, but he managed to put in a pretty disciplined performance. But yeah, oh. you're, you're absolutely right about Toure. It was a uh, it was a moment that made City realise that they had someone who could win matches in a way that they've never really had anyone like that before. And, and I suppose, yeah, and I suppose it, perhaps the icing on the cake would be that Paul Scholes got sent off. Um, a deserved red card. I think we can all agree <laughs> yeah, on yeah. that. It's a big ask for Manchester United now. Paul Scholes has been dismissed. And they've got to play the last 20 minutes or so with 10 men. For certain, there, there was no doubt about that. Uh, no VAR needed. But with Tory scoring and then Scholes, who had been... One of Manchester United's best players, well, you could argue in their history, but certainly in, in the modern era, scored that goal at the Etihad and, and so on. He gets sent off. And that is, a, for me, that's quite a bit well, of a... Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's the thing with the sending off. It's not... You know, some sendings off just sort of happen in the flow of the yeah, game and yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a little bit unlucky that it's two yellow cards or something. Or mm-hmm. This was a really frustrated... Yes. Yeah, uh, a sort of hip-high challenge on Zabaleta yeah. that misses the ball. You know, the ball's gone... You know, a good half second, second early. It's a shocking it's, challenge. There's no quite, I mean, the only way it wouldn't be a red is if if it's so late the referee's turned away. Mm, yeah. Thankfully, <laughs> Mike Dean, a man whose red card trigger is always is always ready. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, saw it, and it, it clearly is a red card. But it sort of it seemed to express the frustration of United, the, the sense of them of being a a side who maybe was struggling slightly to live with the the pace and power of that City midfield. Yeah, the, the noisy neighbours seem to be finally getting to Manchester United. Yeah, I think so. And also it made it easier for City to see it out at the end. Mm. Like, think about that Mancini team as they were they were built to try and go 1-0 up and then sit on, and then sit on it. Uh, you know, they were, very, they were very happy defending deep. They had um, De Jong and Barry and Toure sat in front of the back four. I remember Mancini would always get... Before people really realised what sort of a player Toure was, Mancini would get hammered for playing three holding midfielders. Um, and then I think they finished the game with Vieira on there as well. Mm. So that was obviously a big, a big moment in you know helping City to hold off whatever United surge there was in the second half. Yeah, and for Manchester in those days, it was a case of we've got to get over the line. 
yeah. which is a far cry, obviously, from what we see yeah, I mean, nowadays. The, the, with the was, United yeah, had one one great chance having gone behind, mm-hmm. which was the nanny free kick. Yeah, which just it flicks off. I think Balotelli's head in the wall, and Hart has sort of gone too far. He's going to his right. He's gone slightly too far. The ball's deflected back the way he's come, and he manages to stretch his left hand up and flick it onto the bar. And I, I so you know you see that and you see that you have know, a save made from Berbatov early on. And you sort of, it's, it's quite easy given the way things went to forget just how good Joe Hart was mm-hmm. back then. That, you know, he was a key part of, of City establishing themselves as, as an elite side. Yeah, well, absolutely right. One, one can forget that. And this is this Manchester City side started produ- having these big characters. Vincent Company's in that team. Uh, Joe Hart's there, as you say, Jonathan. You know, the, the David Silva, um, Yaya Toure. I mean, you see, he- I think this is fascinating because I think if there is a criticism of the present side, which yeah, again, it's slightly absurd to, uh-huh. to yeah to be critical of a team that has got 198 points in two seasons. Mm-hmm. It is the absence of those characters. Was Abaletta as well another one? Yeah, I mean, Company is sort of the last of them, but he's yeah. obviously now now gone. Um, and so, yeah, that Guardiola's plan A is clearly phenomenally good, um, and it will work ninety nine percent of the time. Mm-hmm. But there have been times, notably the two Liverpool Champions League games last season, when you have thought they actually need something to step outside the system and. You know, grab the game by the scruff of the neck to use to use that cliche yeah. and drag it that way. In company a way that, versus Leicester City. Uh, yeah, company against Leicester this season is an example of somebody doing it, but they don't really have. Maybe De Bruyne can sort of do it, but obviously this season he hasn't hasn't been about. Um, but but uh, you know, Toure was was that play? You think even of the League Cup final against Sunderland when mm. Sunderland won a little bit half time, and I don't know, was it three four minutes in the second half? He was, no backlift, pings the ball <sighs> in the top corner, and suddenly the game's over. Um, so you know, it is interesting to look at the, the two, you know, this iteration of yeah. uh, of um, the Mansur City and the present iteration, and they are actually very different. This is a team of of leaders and individuals and winners, and the present side is a great system that maybe lacks that, or in fact maybe cannot have. I told them individual. The whole point of being such a system it's, is that the individuality more, is is sort of it's more sustainable. It, yeah, it's probably more sustainable, but it maybe sort of lacks the. the Bit of like robustness, yeah, a little, a little bit of of, of uh, just a sort of a, the character to say, right, this this isn't going against us. We are dragging it back, and that that's a sort of paradox of Guardiola's football. I think that it, it it's it forces subjugation to the system, but then if the system's failing, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, I mean that that's one of the most um, the most interesting single moment in the uh, All or Nothing Amazon documentary is when Fabian Delph, who's, <laughs> who's kind of in the mode of a player who is kind of is tr- he's trying to take control and tell his players what's what and tell his teammates what's what and he's on this rant about the basics of football defenders defend midfielders box to box after City have lost a game and Guardiola shuts Delft down and says no 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 Fabi Fabi football it's so complicated mm. um, and that shows it you know and now Delft has barely played this season like that it shows it shows exactly the same tension Jonathan's talking about which is that Guardiola doesn't really want individualists he doesn't want arguers he doesn't want people that stand up for themselves he doesn't want people that think outside the box he just wants people who can who can like totally internalize his playbook and are technically good enough to execute it yeah and that, you think back to Zlatan's well, I was about to say yeah yeah and he described yeah he obviously is is exactly that individual part um, of opposites and he you know he gets to Barcelona and he describes him as being you know Xavi and Iniesta as being obedient little schoolboys exactly and the beginning of the schoolboys and the class together is brilliant, 
but they do have that fascinating little flaw that in, the, in that tiny handful of games when it does start to go wrong maybe they do just lack that 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 character well having a bully back. on your side essentially yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, it's what, what fascinates me about this as well I think it's a, it's a it, it's a really interesting thing about modern football that um, if you read Raphael Honigstein's book uh, Das Reboot and you read his, his work on Klopp um, one of the reasons Klopp was was controversial when he first came through and he sort of emerged less as a coach than as a TV pundit was his insistence on talking about systems and talking about the back four and talking about pressing and about shape and all the pundits before then all the players who, who sort of whose formative years have been the 70s and the 80s well now it's about leaders on the pitch and you think of the great Germany sides of the 80s and 90s and you had Rummenigge and you had Bremer and you had Matthias mm. and you had Sammer and you had Effenberg these really big personalities who, whose responsibility would be mm. Oliver Kahn to drag, Oliver Kahn yeah. yeah to drag the game their way and there's Klopp saying, no, it's actually systems important. Now, the weird thing now is we think of Klopp, actually, he has loads of those individuals on his side. His Liverpool team is capable of dragging games back from nowhere. Uh, so that, that tension in German football was, in the 90s, it was all about individuals and leaders, and Klopp wanted it to be more about systems. This is the you know, sort of the reverse. Guardiola wants it all to be about systems, but maybe they then lack those leaders. Mm-hmm. And Klopp... It sort of occupies now sort of weird middle ground in the context of 90s Germany he was very system driven compare him to Guardiola he's much more individual driven mm-hmm. so you see that full spectrum from I don't know Germany 96 the, the team that won the European Championship actually not a very good team but they had the personalities to win it and you compare that to Guardiola now and it's like they're the two ends of the spectrum It's interesting to think whether or not a a manager as system driven as Guardiola will be able to win the Champions League without having like the ultimate system player in Messi, like because that's I think what you were, you were right with what you said earlier, which is that the kind of the systemness of Pep at City is probably one of the reasons why they haven't been able to win in the Champions League. Because if you're if you run a team in this way on like a system basis, as soon as something goes wrong, then it kind of fries the players' heads because they're because they're thinking, well, I thought the system was perfect, and then it goes wrong. <laughs> you know, whether it's Son scoring twice at the Etihad or whether it's Liverpool's fantastic first half in Anfield in the quarter leg, sorry, the quarterfinal first leg last season, as soon as like there's any glitch in the system, the players the, the players don't know how to react. Well, there's that weird City. habit got the other side to, to concede goals in, in clutches. So, you know, the Bayern Munich letting in three in the last 13 minutes at, at Barcelona in uh, 2015. His um, uh, Bayern Munich side against Real Madrid let in three in half an hour or so. The three they let in against Liverpool last season. Uh, and you're right, the, the Sun goals. I mean, I think you, know, you could equally look at that game, that, that, that quarter final, and say... Yeah, but for an incredibly tight bar decision, yeah. they would have gone through. But the point is, they're put in that position by a bang bang two goals in three minutes, four minutes, whatever it was, because the, yeah, I, th- I think brains are fried when when the first one goes. Oh, whoa, whoa, hang on, Where, what's the fallback? The fallback is what we were doing already because the plan A is so good. Um, I, I, you can't criticize them not having a plan B because his plan A has got 198 points over two seasons. But it's an interesting facet of that. It's not necessarily a fault of that, but it's an interesting facet of that. But that weakness is is um, inherent yeah. within the system, a heavily system driven approach. And I think your your logic is right that a more individualistic approach, as in an approach which had more of these kind of you know the, the, exactly the type of players you were just talking about, might actually be better at reacting to the kind of setbacks because then they could say, okay, guys, don't you know I know this has gone wrong, but let's take five minutes, let's slow it down, let's drop ten yards, let's recover our heads. 
and then we can start trying to play our football again. But they don't really do that, and yeah. that and that I think has killed them. And that's I think interesting. Next season, when company isn't there, I mean, what would have happened if company hadn't been there against Leicester? And have a crack here. getting closer. What, what, um, what, would they have drawn that game and if they drawn that game then what happens and that's a really interesting counterfactual that company scores a, a, a freakish goal in the sense that we well, had what 36 shots previously yeah. from outside the box that yeah. hadn't gone on target and just when you need it he pings on the top corner from 25 yards and yet even then the act of taking the shot was itself heretical yes, to Guardiola football yeah. because yeah. it was so that, well, that I, is I mean, not the plan I, I really hope he got fined afterwards <laughs> maybe that's why they let him go yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah uh, but going back to this Mancini side this is as you said there had these kind of characters Yaya Toro being an obvious one and Manchester United were more, I suppose, character driven. Yeah, there were systems, but but Ferguson changed them as we know over over the years. But this Man City side suddenly had some characters, some 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 big boys that could stand up to the big boys of, of Manchester United, who were no longer the bigger boys. They became equals, and as you say, um, or as you mentioned at the start of this, to words of the effect of a changing of the guard, this was the game that you can almost pinpoint. Because the following season, Man City go on to win their first league title in the, in the modern era and uh, Guardiola and, and all that comes years later. Yeah, I mean, I think you could also look at the, the famous 6-1 win at Old Trafford, mm-hmm. which came about six months after this, um, or even the 1-0 at the Etihad at the end of that season with a company header, mm. uh, which really kind of retilted the, the title. Was, what, three, four games in the end of yeah, that season? Yeah, kind of tilted the title Do you think back. they happen? I mean, it's a very hypothetical question, but do you think they happen or the 6-1 without this? I don't think so. I think I think you're right. I think that this was such an such an important like staging post towards those two future wins. I think if City had lost this game, then they would have... Would they have been able to go to Old Trafford and play with the same confidence? Uh, would they have been able to chase down Manchester United in the title race? Probably not. Mm. Well, how do you? What do you think would have happened? I mean, I, I realise this is incredibly hypothetical, but I, I'm wondering: was this phase necessary to create psychological conditions for Guardiola to come in? If Guardiola had been appointed when Mancini was, I mean, obviously he was at Barcelona and doing great things at Barcelona, so it wouldn't have happened. But would it have been possible to impose that system philosophy without the ground being cleared by these big personalities? That's a really interesting one. Um, I mean, for a start, it would have been much harder because the players wouldn't have been good enough. Like yeah, they, weren't, yeah. they weren't good in 2016, um, but they would have. You know, they were certainly worse back in 2011. No, I mean that's. Uh, a, I mean, we probably should. I know we sort of touched on some of that team, but if you look, Lescott, Adam Johnson, um, you know, it's it's obviously a good team, but it's nowhere near yeah. the level of now. But I think you're. Yeah, I think you're right. They had to. You know, they had to learn how to win. Um, and if they hadn't done that before, it would have been much harder for for Pep to walk into a team which had, you know, w- which had no experienced players to lean on, no record of winning any trophies at all, still had a massive psychological chip on their shoulder about Manchester United, about winning trophies, uh, about what might have then have been perceived as like a total waste of all the uh, Abu Dhabi investment. That would have been a very difficult, a yeah, very so different. I mean, that, that Joe Hart save early on from Berbatov mm. looks incredibly important, not just in terms of this game, but in terms of the entire history of, mm-hmm. of City. And I suppose as well the, the significance of it being a semi-final at Wembley, more attention. I mean, there's always plenty of attention on a Manchester derby, and it's a huge step into the final. They win their first trophy. 
the, the, the kind of importance of that as well can't be underestimated. Yeah, I think I was so I was reading the papers earlier from from this day, and in Rich Williams' piece in, in the Observer, he wrote that City, their fans and players just wanted it more. And like we often, you know, sometimes we kind of laugh at that as an explanation, but I do think in this sense it's valid. Like he made the point that United come to Wembley all the time. Mm. As for City, this was, as we as we discussed, this was their first game in ages. And it, you could just you could just tell how much it meant to all of them. Mm-hmm. Like even I remember right at the end, the City players were kind of dancing around on the pitch as if they'd won it. They yeah. were doing the yeah, that's right, the yeah. Poznan celebration <laughs> where they all link arms and and jump up and down facing the other way. Uh, it felt like the spell had been lifted. Yeah, although of course, had City lost to Stoke in the final, which they could have done, mm-hmm. then everybody would have looked back at that as being incredible hubris. Yeah, uh-huh. I mean that that Stoke game. I mean, it was a terrible game. Right? Terrible. Yeah, one one nil. I mean, do you think its terribleness was a facet of how Stoke play, or was it anxiety still? Uh, I'd say a bit of both. I'd say like City were very nervous going into that game because there is it was it was that was another new psychological thing for them going into a final with an obligation to win it. Like they couldn't if they'd won if they had lost that game, it would have been a total disaster. And that was their first final since eighty one. Yeah. Well, to back up your point, look how close they were to messing it up royally when they were at home to QPR to win the league, which was sort of like a final. Yeah, that totally. psychological thing. And even when Pep Guardiola came into Man City, he said that he wants to have a more winning mentality. Now, you think of almost an odd thing to say on the face of having won some trophies before he got there, but he's. But I, I think there is a difference. Uh, you know, I think that's. But you understand psychology. why he said that? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think there's a difference in psychology between a team that believes it is capable of winning trophies every now and again, yeah, and a team that believes we are better than anybody else in this mm. country than in Europe, and we will win every trophy. We will win the domestic treble, and we should win a quadruple. Mm. And anything less than that is failure. Mm. That's a really. I mean, it's a, actually. I think it's not a fun mentality to have at all mm. for either players or or, or fans. So you want your trophies to be. Something to be enjoyed, not 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 the the, the sort of the um, default. Yeah. But Guardiola has now set that as a default, mm. and it feels like anything they don't win is is sort of falling below par. Yeah. Which then, you know, the the flip side of that is they probably don't quite get the credit they deserve when they do win things, and you get reactions. I'm I'm absolutely not criticising this reaction because I had the reaction myself of watching that cup final, watching it six 0 and just think, oh, this is just so dull. It's so much better. <laughs> And you know, I, I know we have quite justifiable um, reservations, shall we say, about the source of the money uh, and about the human rights record of Abu Dhabi. Um, but I, I almost think even if the money came from you know, a, a haulage broker in Manchester, we'd still be going, they've put in a bit too much here, this is a bit boring now. Mm. Yeah. Who would have thought, though, before that semi-final would be talking like that about Man City, though, Jack? I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, it is exactly the contrast between the 2011 FA Cup win and the 2019 FA Cup win, um, which sparked this uh, my idea to talk about this, because it's... And it's uh, fair to say you're nice with day. City affiliations, right? That you're, you're not yeah. saying that as an outsider, you're saying that as somebody who feels like yourself. Yeah, totally, totally. And that was, you know, that's very evident. Just, just, look, just look at the... You know the behaviour and the reaction of the city fans and players between those two games. Like it is yeah. very different. Yeah. I mean, that's again one of the football's paradoxes that it's almost more fun the less successful you are, right? 
Right, and the, and the also speaking the, like, as a Sunderland, Sunderland fan, fan, yeah, fan, as we should say, yeah, and also <laughs> we're the, the happiest people in the world. <laughs> <laughs> both got interesting documentaries, though. On, uh, yeah. Well, no, we've got an interesting documentary. <laughs> there we go. I mean, it, I th- it also shows that, like, for, like what Jonathan was just saying, for fans, like your expectation level will always rise. Mm. Uh, in in keeping with the level of the team, so much so that if the team is very good, then you you know you don't necessarily enjoy winning so much because it's the expectation. Mm. And I remember, you know, I know City fans who who after City lost to Newcastle in January when it looked like they'd blown the league, and they talked about it like it was the biggest disaster that ever happened to any any football team. Like a friend of mine sent me a message after the game saying. Um, this team will never be remembered and neither will Pep. <laughs> I'm sick of them ruining my weekends. Why always us? Yeah. Hey, um, short memories indeed. Uh, Jack, thank you very much for choosing that game. Fascinating to talk about it. Um, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to the Blizzard's Greatest Games podcast recorded at Outset Studios in South Wimbledon. Jonathan and I will be back uh, for another one of these podcasts very, very soon. <laughs>